Hi, and welcome to Bread. John's Gospel features seven sayings of Jesus which begin with I am. And they serve a singular purpose, to emphatically reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. This is a series about these saints. They confront us with the real Jesus and they invite us to meet with him. Because the Christian faith is not primarily a doctrine to believe or a moral code to follow or even an experience to participate in. It is a person to meet. And our hope is that you would meet the living Jesus. Enjoy. just flipping lovely to hear stories like that, isn't it? Um, I do, you know, we, we're from a, a church envir- environment that really, really ingrained in us the, not just the kind of important addition of the work of the Spirit, but really the whole thing we're doing here is, is about following the Spirit. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily always as powerful to kind of hear the testimony of Ed and I up here talking about this as it is is just people who are going, I did find this really weird and something very beautiful happened and we're so grateful for the way that God does this. This is the final in our series of um, talks on Jesus's I am statements in the book of John. And slightly out of sequence for unimportant reasons, I'm speaking today on the sixth um, of his statements, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm a bit too quiet, sorry. Um, I don't think there is a passage in the whole of the Bible, it's a bold claim, that better shows us who Jesus is and what he is like than the one I'm speaking from this morning, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. But to remind you uh, that there are seven I am statements in this book, there are also seven signs, seven being the Jewish number of completion and perfection. And these signs, one of which accompanies uh, this statement that he makes this morning, are um, filled with symbolic meaning, all to complete this picture of um, Jesus and his, his completion, his power over, over a broken, fallen world, his creative and transforming power of water to wine, his lordship over all of our fleshly reality, his, the lordship of his spoken command, the lordship that he has over the elements. And the sign that accompanies uh, today's I am statement, Jesus' lordship over death. He raises Lazarus from his tomb, anticipating the story of his own empty tomb, bringing to completion this full picture of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. So before we read the passage, which we'll come to in just a second, I just wanna quickly look at what resurrection meant to a first century Jewish mindset because it meant what it means to us and it meant some other stuff. I think resurrecting someone from the dead is, can we agree on this, a pretty spectacular piece of evidence that you have access to supernatural power, which is part of it. I have seen in my life, in front of my eyes, a number of incredible supernatural events. 
on days away like the one that was yesterday and other situations in church and outside of church. Um, some unbelievable deliverances, quite a few healings. Enough to know that while we'll never ever know why all of our prayers for these, uh, these miracles aren't answered, we must never ever stop praying for them. And during the worship actually, I did have a strong sense that there was power for physical healing today. Um, one picture I had was someone, someone has a, an injury to a bone in their leg from football, and I don't know whether that's your football or our football. Um, that's what I heard. So if you have an injury in your leg, why on earth wouldn't we pray for that this morning? Because wouldn't that be fantastic? But for any physical healing, if there's something wrong with your body, come forward at the end of this and let us pray, because God heals. I have never seen anyone raised from the dead. I do know people who have, though. In other parts of the world where maybe, and this is just a theory, they see more of Jesus' miraculous power because their eyes are more fixed on the unseen things than ours are, to use Paul's language, less driven by what's in front of us, less driven by the pursuit of wealth and the status and the things, the seen things that we perhaps more culturally focus on. My cousin Simon uh, administrates an outreach in Burundi. Burundi is a small African nation just south of um, Rwanda. Uh, Burundian culture very, very much believes in the spiritual realm as a part of life. And my cousin does this. Um, he used to live there. He now is in the UK. Uh, but he fundraises so that teams from churches from uh, Burundi's cities can go out into the bush and tell people about Jesus. I mean, among other things that he does. Um, they see extraordinary things. They see all this stuff. When they go out and they proclaim who Jesus is and exactly as he instructed his disciples to, they do it with the faith for the accompanying, 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 I can't do it, accompanying <laughs> signs. Um, every, every time, every newsletter that, that has, that's accompanying one of these, there's, people, there's blind people seeing, there's paralyzed people walking, and from time to time, people raised from the dead. Most recently, a woman had a, a vision of, a, of somebody else lying in a city morgue, um, or not a city morgue, a non-city morgue, uh, who had been killed in a car crash, and she felt Jesus say, you, I'm going to raise her, go and find her. And she went, she went, she found this morgue, and they prayed for her, and she was raised from the dead. I mean, what, what on earth can we even do with that information? My cousin's blog is called Great Lakes Outreach, if you'd like to hear stories of this, if you'd like to have your faith built for them, Great Lakes Outreach, you can just Google it, and you will get these delivered to your inbox if you'd like faith for more of this stuff and to just hear what is happening in the church outside of our context. However, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, from the dead was, like all of his miracles, a display of power over darkness um, and his great love for the world. But also, resurrection had another meaning to his Jewish audience, and I just want to contextualize that quickly for us. There was, and still is in Orthodox Judaism, a foretold belief that bodily resurrection from the dead will be a sign of the Messianic age. Um, the good creator God that they believe in will send a Messiah um, who would come and restore, you know, all peace everywhere, no more war, um, a return for, for all the Jewish people from exile to their, to their land, temple rebuilt, and um, that the Jewish dead from all of history would rise from their graves and re-exist in their old bodies in this new kingdom for a, for a set amount of time. So Shiva, the Jewish funeral tradition, prepares the corpse so that when this happens, bodies will be ready to be restored. 
So this isn't just one final sign, one incredible display of, of Jesus' power, as it might read to us. This is a startling demonstration, witnessed by a large number of Jewish people, as we're about to see, of a very dead man coming back to life, making an unbelievably loud and clear declaration that Jesus was the one they were waiting for. So let us now hear this account from John's Gospel, chapter 11. Ben. Thank you. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days and then said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, said Martha to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus, oh, I'm reading too much. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection of the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by belonging in me will never die. Do you believe this? Verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have made this have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Then the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and believed in him.
Thanks. Um, it's a long passage, and I, yeah, yeah. And I tried to cut out some, some verses, but I think I really screwed that up in terms of what I told the lyrics people and what I told Ben. So, um, but don't worry, we we're going to recap it. Sorry about that. Jesus receives a message from his friends, Mary and Martha, that Lazarus, who he loves, is sick. Most scholars believe that these three siblings were wealthy benefactors of a ministry to the poor in and around Bethany. It's actually a big hoo-ha at the minute in scholarly, in New Testament scholarly circles. Um, I won't, I'm resisting the urge to go down a big tangent on this because it's fascinating that this Mary here is actually Mary Magdalene. We don't know. Uh, we don't know loads about them other than that Jesus loved them. He came to visit them frequently. Note that the sisters knew how to reach him. Note that the women call him teacher, which as women they should not have done and certainly would not have done if they didn't know that they were very welcome to. Note that they knew that he would want to know. These are Jesus' people and one of them is dying. The language used of Jesus' love of these guys is, is real intimacy. It's language um, only used of Jesus' love that, Agape and Filio having different meanings, but building to this picture of real closeness and intimacy. Um, we only have this language of Jesus' love for two other people, that's Peter and John. John, of course, calls himself the beloved disciple, um, which is big, but I don't think it is um, to big himself up, actually, um, or these guys. I don't think this is about leveraging self-importance for the people that read this. It's not like your awful LA friend who went to kindergarten with some massively famous celebrity and won't stop talking about them because it makes them feel important. I think uh, one of John's great motivations in the whole of his gospel is revealing Jesus' humanity, how he needed, trusted, and loved his friends. Note that both the first sign, the wedding at Cana, and this last sign, um, both unique in his gospel, happen in the company of Jesus' dearest friends. I really think what John wants us to get this. Jesus loved and even relied on his friends. I wonder if this might be a new thing for some of us to consider, actually. Because I think maybe we, we get the concept of Jesus as part of the Godhead, as part of the Trinity, being in perfect relationship, modeling perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit. But have we considered this aspect of Jesus' humanity? As a perfect human, he not only offered but needed close, loving, intimate friendship. I believe this is shown to us over and over again, particularly as, as it all hots up now in the days leading up to his arrest. Even when he, unlike us, is in perfect relationship with his Father and is full of the Spirit, he still needed people on earth. So that's just to say your need for people in your life, your need for companionship, your desire to share yourself with someone, your desire to be there for someone, for love, for family, for connection and belonging, whether you're comfortable with them or not, are entirely godlike. These needs are holy, as modeled here by Jesus. So I'll take the little opportunity again to recommend that you sign up for a small group and to recommend that you go to the dating night. Two sisters, two beloved friends, grieving the loss of their brother, receiving two 
very different, very interestingly different reactions from Jesus. Did you clock that Martha and Mary say the exact same thing to him as they separately greet him on the road? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. His answers to them both are so strikingly different, but so important because I believe they are deliberately recorded by John this way to give, it, give us these striking dual essential statements on who Jesus is. These two pictures of Jesus replying to his beloved friends that are our lifelong job to hold intention. The God of the universe, Jesus, Lord over everything, Lord over death, the fulfillment of all divine promise, demonstrating his power, all in the same scene, showing us exactly what it is to be human. Two identical greetings, two incredible replies. So let's look at the first. To Martha's grief, to Martha's question and Martha's faith, he answers, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Not the Messiah is a sign from God who will bring in the era when all the Jewish dead will resurrect. I am the new era. I am the life. It's the same Greek word for life here that we looked at in the bread of life um, statement. Zoe life, divine, uniquely possessed by God. Eternal, breathed into us by the God of the universe. Life that we're made for, full of love, joy and energy and bounty and harmony. Life now, here. The presence of perfect peace in the midst of life storms, goodness and joy, strength to your bones, the promise of the Spirit transforming you day by day, bringing his love and his experience of love, just like we just heard about. Fullness of life now and life for eternity. The promise of a future time and place when all death, all pain, all brokenness, all discord will be finished forever. The old has gone. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. A full-blown and complete Christological confession from one grieving sister, a woman whose testimony would not be valid in a court of law, who John credits with the huge testimonial honor of speaking of one, speaking one of the only two times, or the only two people who will speak, who will categorically recognize Jesus' status before he goes to a cross, the other being Peter. It is agonizingly unfair what, Martha, what she's remembered for. What Martha, what, I mean, what do you think of when you think of Martha? You think about the housework thing, right? It's so unfair and so typical because here she is recognizing Jesus for who he is and like everybody else around her in this crucial moment. It's huge. And then there's Mary. An interaction so, so different and so important in its contrast because Jesus' love for these people, now sucks him in, even though he knows what he's about to go and do. Deeply moved and troubled is not quite right in 33 and 38 to talk about the emotional repression of our English-speaking forefathers. 
the ones who translated this, it's, Jesus was a tad put out at the pain of his friends. In the Greek word, this, word, this is deeply moved. It describes the bellow or snort of anger, usually describing an animal. This is the grunt of a warhorse in battle. This is raw, furious outrage. Eugene Peterson in the message says Jesus was quaking with rage. And the wept part isn't quite right either. Sort of sad little tear or two, being caught up in all the emotion. This is wailing out loud. This is an outburst of rage and pain from the deepest level of his being. And again, this incredible detail here. Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus, right? John's made that clear. There are so many other ways that Jesus could have responded and still be completely Jesus-y. It could have been a, have more faith, Mary. Come on, have more faith. It could have, he, the logical thing is that he says exactly the same thing, asks Mary the same question he's just asked Martha. It makes the same exact statement that he's just said to Martha. Or to stoop down to Mary who's fallen at his feet and go, stop crying, Mary. Look, come, see what I'm about to do. But Jesus is perfect love and perfect relationship and perfect compassion. And his friends are hurting and he cannot not grieve with them. As Tavia mentioned last week, a solid theodicy or a working theory on how a good God can allow suffering is not a simple thing to come by. For me... I think this right here is it. This is what a good God thinks about suffering. John 11:35 is the answer. And it is a message that the world desperately needs. His rage, his tears, his pain here at Lazarus's tomb, here at all of our tombs, literal and figurative for all loss, for all disappointment, for all pain, all rupture of relationship, all despair, all grief, for all of us. He raged for Martha and Mary, and he does it for you, because he loves you. Gah, sorry. The God of the universe rails and rages. He tells you the one he loves that the reason that you struggle to make sense of your pain is because it is not what you were made for. There is no answer or comment on suffering that makes sense with the gospel apart from this. Things are not as they should be here yet, and it hurts. What I think we also see here is that love without anger is not possible. The more love, the more anger when what you love is threatened. Jesus' anger came out on a number of occasions when the object of his love, all mankind, but especially in that context, it was, the, it was those forgotten by the religious elites, the poor women, children, Gentiles. His anger came out most often when those people were threatened or held back, for him, held back from him. Sorry. Anger is the necessary response when the object of our love is threatened. And that can include ourselves. I think for many of us, it's uncomfortable to imagine that Jesus acted this way. And it's uncomfortable to really get to grips with 
a holy attitude on our anger. I had an experience of it quite recently, and I'm sure parents in the room will really relate to this, but I, was, I went to uh, one of my kids' schools because she was giving a speech running for the president of the student council. And she was very brave, and she did very well, and we were very proud of her. And she came off all beaming, knowing she'd done well. And perhaps without knowing that I was her mum standing behind her, another child, who I know there's been some conflict between them in the past, came up and in my hearing went, Madison's speech was better than yours and she's gonna win. And I, I don't know why she did it. I don't know what her story is, where her pain is. But I felt anger within me, particularly as Margot turned around with big tears in her eyes. And because I'm, I was mulling on this, really meditating on this passage at the time, it was, a, it was a fascinating experience of really experiencing God's sense of this is, this is right, this is what it's for. What I didn't do was use my size and my good use of words to destroy the child <laughs> who is 10. I shared some of the words I might have said with Ed later and so probably, you know, strayed away from the holiness of the whole thing there. But to feel anger come up and to recognize its purpose and its holiness and to know what to do with that, I think is a life's work that a lot of us need to get into. I think a lot of us are very, very uncomfortable with our anger because in the past it has, it has hurt us, it's made us feel shame, it's damaged us. It's our life's work with anger, actually, to work out what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians when he says, be angry and do not sin. But he does say, be angry. Being alive is going to involve anger. And Jesus welcomes your anger and, his, and your sadness. He can cope with it just fine if, and sometimes this is part of the pro process of it all, your anger is aimed at him. There's ample evidence that he's fine with that. In the Psalms, in the rest of the Old Testament wisdom literature, God is absolutely fine with our expression of anger and disappointment at him. But far better to envision that he wails with you, he bellows in pain with your pain. I believe that so many of us have been negatively impacted in our spiritual health by only receiving Martha's Jesus true, powerful, resurrected, victorious Jesus, the one we're hearing about in the worship and in Ed's reflection on that. Nothing about the gospel makes sense without that Jesus. But we've missed out on the other half. And I do think, for some of us, it is going to require some rewriting. Joe's word in the worship about... Um, being in the wilderness resonated with a story that I kind of I knew I wanted to share this morning. That was definitely an experience of this becoming more real than it ever had done to me in uh, January 2021, which I think was a time that most of us would say we were having some dark days, with you know whatever we were 10 months into lockdown at that point, no end in sight, no vaccine yet, the insurrection, like just everything was like, what is happening? Where are we? And when is this going to end? Um, I won't go in the detail, into the details of how we ended up um, in the wilderness, in Yosemite, in an Airbnb, 
um, after a very big storm had taken out power lines. Um, but we did, we were there. And uh, that's where we lived at that time. We'd got kicked out of our rental. And uh, we got COVID, all of us. And we were pretty sick, um, the rest of us. But Ed was very, very sick. And uh, I'd been advised to go and get a pulse ox because he, I mean, he was like literally barely woke up for three days. It was pretty scary. Um, I was watching his oxygen levels go in and out of the like rush to hospital now level while a, another winter storm was forecast. And I just didn't, I just didn't know what to do. I had no idea. Like, I can't, I can't, we can't all go to hospital. I can't leave the girls alone. I can't ask anyone to help because we've all got COVID. Um, we can't go stay in a hotel near a hospital. I don't know what to do. And I reached out on a WhatsApp group to um, a, a people who, who I knew pray for us would kind of uh, hold what I felt very incapable of doing, which was sensing direction and uh, wisdom for what on earth I should do while I'm feeling really unwell. And one of these friends called me um, after, I think it was just after the first night of literally lying next to Ed all night, watching his pulse ox, going, "Is it? should I go now? Should I go now? I don't know what to do. And... Um, this friend said, and how, like, how are you? are you, like, how are you doing? And I said, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I can't, I can't pray, Bill, I can't pray, I don't, I don't I, every time I, I can't find any words, I can't pray in tongues, I can't do anything, I can't pray, every time I try, I just cry. And he went, oh, Hannah, what makes you think that your tears aren't prayer? And it, profoundly <laughs> impacted me with the realization I'm so used to my sadness being a source of disconnection. But Jesus understands everything about this. We need to deepen our understandings of the sacredness of sadness as well as the holiness of anger. Not, of course, that we can't go very wrong in our expressions of them, but they have a holy place in our lives as God salams his image on earth, as with every aspect of our humanity, he wants to meet us in them. Two sisters, two replies, two truths, bringing us back to the tension, the now and the not yet of his kingdom, this era that we live in, where Jesus has risen, he is on the throne, he has conquered death, he is resurrected and alive. And we, as his followers, are restored to this access to him, relationship with him by the power of his spirit, who is with us, interceding for us, cheering us on, meeting us constantly at work to bring us back, to heal us. But it is not yet fully accomplished. The world doesn't work like it was made to. Integration is this Jungian term about how we grow into psychological health by organizing the entirety of ourselves. So our beliefs, emotions, impulses, experiences, relationships into unity. The complete unity of these things, a system that works together and makes sense together is the goal, very generally speaking, in psychological health. And when there's discord between those things, let's say, for example, between our beliefs and our experiences, 
it leads to chaos psychologically, or shutdown, and all the various forms that those things can take. I think the same is very true of our spiritual selves. We cannot be spiritually healthy without integrating a full picture of Jesus' divinity with his humanity. If we take Jesus' answer to Martha alone, we get all truth. This is just about correct biblical knowledge. And the Christian life becomes simply about knowing and believing. Correct biblical knowledge is very important, lest you hear me not say that. But if we just take Mary's reply, we have a God who is with us in our pain, draws near to us in our darkest days, but he doesn't have anything to say or do about them. We lose all the power and the truth. What the world needs now is love. Jesus' love and Jesus' power and a church who knows how entirely integrated these things are. Let us be integrated followers of Jesus. Let us refuse the worldly ways of being forced to one side or another, one tribe or another. Let us follow the Jesus of John 11. Let us have a crystal clear image of the one Jesus of John 11. God of the universe winning victory over sin and death, weeping with his friend. Of our great high priest who has ascended into heaven, who is able to empathize with our weaknesses so that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, as it says in Hebrews. If the band want to come back up, that would be wonderful. Just going to finish with the last sort of scene from this. We go to verse 38. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb to a man dead for four days. If you were wondering about that little note where it says that Jesus was, you know, upset with them, but then he stayed where he was for two days, which is a bit weird. Uh, John expected his readers to know about the Jewish belief that the soul remained in the vicinity of the body for three days. So that's kind of part of the morning ritual is that you stand guard over the body for three days after death, but then it departs and the body begins to decompose. So the point is, by this day, by the day that Jesus is, arrives, Lazarus is definitely no more. And Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. <clears throat> the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. In front of a crowd of a very dead man, completely untouchable by Jewish Lord, Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let him go, as if speaking to death itself. Jesus raged and Jesus conquered. We will not be free of the grave clothes of this life of pain and loss and suffering, relationship rupture and betrayal and all those things. Even as his followers, the New Testament is very clear on that. But picture this Jesus now. Meditate on this, Jesus, now as we stand. 
the Jesus that conquered death, who himself rose again, who gives access to every resource that he had, who sent the Holy Spirit, interceding always with wordless groans, who will not stop in his mission to rescue and restore. Let's stand now. I think what I would love to invite you to do, if you can bear it, is rather than sing this song, to close your eyes and ask the Spirit to bring you this picture of Jesus. Come and receive this power. To those in the worship who are feeling sort of relating to that wilderness thing, hear Jesus' words. Let him go. Let her go. They are mine. Let him show you that you're his child. Let him fill you with his joy, his strength. Let him remind you that he is with you. He is with you and he is for you. Holy Spirit, will you come now? <laughs>